Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. This is a nice one today. This is uh, with Srethne, and fabulous individual who got in touch with us and about coming on the show. And what what hasn't the gentleman done? What hasn't he done? Originally starting with an internship with Clive Barker, then coming to do some bits and pieces with the RZA at the Wu-Tang Clan, journalist, photographer around the Hollywood Strip and all that time with some fabulous bands coming through comedian stand-up personality just every sort of facet when we talk about revenue streams and and fingers in pies and stuff Sreth is do is just doing all kinds of stuff hugely inspirational and doesn't even realize it so i made sure that i told him as well during the episode it's probably better you check out his stuff i'll put some links on on the podcast and what have you of all the various things he did but then to go out after being in uh in, in la and stuff go out from there and move out to Colorado and start forming your own festival and do your own thing, which he's doing now, which is fabulous. And um, really, really interesting individual with some greater uh, views and outlooks on on the scene. Uh, and particularly, like I say, the uh, the Hollywood Strip and stuff during like the nineties and and things like that and 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 two thousands. Really, really insightful. Really, really interesting uh, gentleman. And we'll definitely get we'll definitely get Treth on again, hundred percent. So without further ado, please uh, enjoy this show. Um, thanks for all the feedback. Make sure you share it with people who you think would enjoy it as well. And I give you Srethne. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, a real special guest, I think, uh, you'll find on, on, on the show today. Um, someone who approached me to come on the show and, uh, and I went through his personal sort of EPK, his electronic press kit, and was floored. By some of the fantastic things that he had going on, uh, chiefly of which being a promoter and falling into becoming a promoter and a concert promoter. But there's a whole load of things that we need to talk about uh, with today's guest, uh, Tereth Ney, is with us. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. Um, Tereth is from from the uh, one of our US friends. Um, Formerly Cam- Cambodian, and um, so we're definitely going to get again into 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 all that kind of thing. But from across the pond in in the US, he's based at the moment. And uh, where that where the hell do we start? And <laughs> what a what an interesting, fascinating story um, you really do have. And um, one of the things that maybe some of the the, the listeners will be for mostly familiar with is one of the first starting points for yourself is with. Um, Clive Barker. Uh, a lot of people will know Clive from being around in and around Liverpool, and that connection um, and you meeting him seems to be a, quite a pivotal moment in in your life. Oh, absolutely! It was just like um, a completely accidental because um, I was uh, looking for a, an internship to graduate college, and someone had sent me a message on MySpace back in the day saying that he was releasing a new book called Mister Be Gone. And it was about a demon that possessed a book, uh, possessed the book while you were reading it. And um, the demon was jumping on my page. It was moving, as it said in the book, and there was nothing causing it to move. And I looked over and I and the page was moving and it freaked me out. I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. And um, and so he had scared me with like Hellraiser and Candyman and, and stuff like that in the, my like in my early years, because Candyman scared me for like six years straight. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I really got to learn how to scare people like he scared me. So I reached out to him and um and it was beautiful. Like everything just unfolded. Like I messaged um, his website um, developers, Phil and Sarah, and they forwarded my email to his people in LA. And then um, they said, give us a date, um, send us your resume. And at the time it had like a hardware store on it. 
And um, and that was about it. No film work, no like written works, no nothing. And so it was just like me. I just said, just mold me the way you want me to be. And then I'm happy. Just like give me knowledge, you know. And then he get, he interviewed me himself, like from his house. And I was like floored. Like when I saw him, I'm like, holy crap, do you know who you are? You know, and I just <laughs> lit up as a Christmas tree. Like it was nuts. <laughs> and he just asked me three questions and um he goes, I love you, kid. You're in, but you just have to wait a year and write me every single week before you get here and and you got the gig. And I'm like, wow, that was pretty intense. Yeah. I think that's a like that's a that sounds like it it really set you on a journey at that point. And and we'll go into kind of the, the movements from that journey. But I think what a lot of people will probably be interested to hear is when you and I start a lot of these podcasts with when you first because clearly music is an, it is an incredible part of your life and a shaping force within it. When did you first start to hear music? And, and, and what were those first music th- things you got into? Um, it was like pre- pretty much top 40 radio, like um, in the 80s. And I was remembered listening to like Madonna. Mm. And, um, and that first stood out, uh, my first music memory. And of course, like there was Boy George and there was like just everyone that was like on top 40 rated, like Karma Chameleon and all that stuff. Yeah. And then when I got to my mid in like in the early 90s, I stumbled upon MTV at a friend's house and I saw Dr. Dre the Chronic. And I'm like, sure. oh, my gosh, this is pretty incredible. And so I had my dad buy me a Dre Day single at the mall because I wasn't old enough to buy it yet. I love it. And they popped it in the van and we wrote it, all, listened to it all the way down from like this town over. Um, and then all the way back home on repeat, it was the only song that played. And I remember that quite well. Yeah. And, and then was it, was it kind of, uh, did you find yourself gravitating to certain genres then as well, like rap music and that type of thing? Or was it still the top 40 for quite a while? Cause at that stage, there was an enormous amount of rap prominence, uh, in the charts, wasn't there? Oh, big time. Especially like, um, when I was like watching like. EOM TV raps, you know, every time I went and slept at my cousin's house because they were the only ones that had cable and my parents couldn't afford it at the time. So I'm like, all right, this is pretty neat. And we were staying up and watching EOM TV raps. And then like um, in the late 90s, of course, like the Wu-Tang Clan dropped Wu-Tang Forever. And I'm like, oh, my God, my sister actually bought it from uh, Europe during her uh, European travels. Mm. And I'm like, this is a double album. That's absolutely amazing. I got to listen to more of this. And then I went and and then like the only thing that like bridged my gap from like uh, hip hop and like top forty uh, in the early two thousands was actually Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory. Theory. Right, right, yeah. Because there's so many genres in it, and I'm like, holy moly, there's so many in this. And then like my 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 bonds with other people started like branching out more, and like I was being friends with like other people that liked Linkin Park, and they were listen- introducing me to like more rock music that wasn't Linkin Park, and like taking me to shows and stuff like that, like. And then my, my second concert ever was Metallica with Deftones, Mud Vane, Linkin sure. Park, Limp Biscuit, And um, uh, I think I mentioned Deftones, but they were on the bill too. And and that was like my second concert ever. My first concert ever was Eminem, but like my very first okay. concert was Metallica. So that was pretty awesome. <laughs> that means, ladies and gentlemen, that now we know Treth can, can, can fully, he can be on the show and it's fine because his first show is Metallica. It's interesting. We were talking before we came on the, uh, on the show about how um, metal and and rock music has very similar vibes and and, and energies with with rap and that type of thing. It has similar sort of uh, feelings and energies, you know. Um, certainly, we were talking about how a lot of um, the the rap and uh, kind of mixes with metal quite well, um, and a lot of 
like someone like Dr. Dre on the, the recent sort of Netflix documentary he was on, he was listening to Nirvana and bands like that. And and I think it's because those types of music share very similar thought processes and very similar sort of ways of coming out there, you know, born from struggle and and and, and oppression and, and and poverty and that type of thing. And so when you're when you were listening to did you have quite a widespread of music, it sounds then? So you were listening to Linkin Park and rock and that type of thing, and you were listening to Top 40, and then you were listening to rap and that type of thing. But for you, I imagine it was just all something you were listening to. You didn't really specify genres. Yep. I mean, I didn't know how to work the radio dial or nothing. I was just in the car listening with my buddy, and I'm like, whatever you have on the radio, I'm fine with. And then, like, sure. eventually, like, I started falling in love with live music and I was like, Hey, there's people on the, in the photo pit. I wonder how to get down there. And then oh, that's okay. kind of, yeah. And I was like, how do I get that close to him and take photos? I'm tired of like shooting from like afar. Oh, and so you, I, were, you were you into photography as well at this point then? Um, yeah. Right after um, uh, college. Cause I interviewed my first group called 303. Okay. And they're like, um, they're in Fort Collins. They did a song with Katy Perry and stuff like that. Just look into them and stuff. And sure. Um, I majored in that, and I um, uh, and then when I was with Clive, um, I he goes, whatever you do, like just don't pigeonhole yourself in hip hop, like or else we'll be stuck right. with hip hop shows. Because I was stuck in horror, and everyone just knows me for horror. And I go, just experience everything from like, because like you're pretty much down the street from the Sunset Strip. There's every right. single genre of music on the Sunset Strip. Yeah, and just go explore. And so I went and saw ska and hip hop and death metal and just everything that I've ever wanted. Like the Vibe Room was there, the Whiskey A Go Go, the Key Club, the Roxy, wow. the House of Blues, and the Will Turn, like a couple blocks more, you know, and and the Palladium. Like I saw the Lamb of God at the Palladium and I covered them. It was just awesome. Wow. And so, so for all, all listeners that maybe have never been to, to, to LA and what have you, these venues that I'm sure you're more than aware of, ladies and gentlemen, are like iconic places. Um, you know, the Rainbow and this type of thing we talk about all the time as being iconic venues. And but they are really are. When 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 Threat's talking about um, blocks, he's talking about only maybe a two or three minute walk from each other. You can go, you know, the Whiskey and the Rainbow and the Troubadour are all are all pretty much within. You can see them, um, and it, that's what makes up the strip. And you can come out of one gig and there's a whole load of people in another gig coming out. And you found this, that there's this wonderful clash of people in a, in a good way where who kind of just occupy the strip. You must have seen that was a real heyday um, for some, especially for rap, uh, but most definitely for metal. That was a real heyday then. You must have seen some some unbelievable fair shows. Like System of a Down, one of their very first shows was on the strip, if I remember rightly. Um, and they were playing... They invented like street teams and stuff based upon the, the stuff that was going on on the strip as well. Like it's fantastic. So you you're studying photography, and Clive says you know go and experience everything. And um, yeah. when did you start going into the pit, if you will, in the photo pit, and 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 actually getting that close? Oh, it was like I would I owe it all to Clive, of course, because like in 2009 he tweeted about me, and I didn't expect nothing of it, you know, and. He tweeted, but like, um, and I all remember it is like he said, Sareth is a gentleman and much loved in my household. I hold him in the highest regard. And I put it on my press kit, as you have seen. Yeah. And yeah. and I'm like, this is nuts. Like, this is like what Stephen King did to co-sign him. And mm. and then his career blew up. And then like, yeah. as soon as I started writing about like the local acts and the people, like I started finding my voice and like how I wanted to like make my articles, like my own voice, like. I was like approached by publicist and like I was on their emailing list and 
I opened up the LA Weekly and I found out their publicist and reached out to their publicist and like, we love the way you write, write about our clients. And they were Soundgarden and Deftones and Lamb of God. And like, just, I got to write about UFO at the Key Club. Like, you know, they're yeah. a, a really old band. And, yeah, and yeah, I, fantastic. And I got it's to write about them. What, one of the things, ladies and gentlemen, as well, that Tress talking about, because I've wrote myself, is um, quite often um, people uh, struggle to find their, what's called in the, the, the writing trade, their prose, their kind of way of, speaking so i speak a certain way and have a certain flow to my voice and and Shreth has a as a flow to his voice that's very unique um and what you're looking for as a writer is to translate that into the written form so it comes across off off the page like Shreth was reading clive barker and it, and, it, and clive's writing makes, makes it the imagery come forward and that's what you know draws Shreth in and so you were finding your voice were you interviewing bands as well or you were just writing about them at this point uh, my very first interview was with um, Cypress Hill, Be Real from right. Cypress Hill. And he did, a, you know, Rock Superstar and like sure, all that. Be stuff. Huge, yeah. And like um, at the time, like Clive's nephew and um, was there and he goes, um, he goes, you got to interview Be Real? I'm like, yeah, it was my very first professional interview. And we were backstage at the House of Blues and marijuana was all over the coffee table. And it was so potent. <laughs> as expected, yeah, as expected. And it was like sold out and he was just amazed and um. You know, and he goes, I can't believe you made Be Real laugh. And I'm like, I can't either. We were talking about pro wrestling and stuff. And sure. and it was just gnarly because I grew up on pro wrestling, too. And so sure. um, we just bonded over that. and It was just awesome. It's interesting how um, musics and, and, and genres also blend into social things like wrestling and professional wrestling. Yep. And how they kind of bleed in and wove in, especially during like the, the 90s when a lot of like music that you were hearing on pro wrestling was made by bands like disturbed and stuff like that. We're getting theme tunes for wrestlers and stuff. There's this wonderful crossover. So you were like hugely prolific judging by, like I say, the things that I've read and the pieces that you've put forward. Uh, you were hugely pro prolific in interviewing, writing about the scene and really, it really involving yourself in it really uh, kind of in, What's the way to say immersing is the way to put it. Immersing yourself in the scene. What was what was that like at that sort of particular period of time? It's uh, especially in LA. That must have been felt like you know early seventies, late sixties explosion of music. It must have felt like at that time. Oh, absolutely! It was just pure magic. I mean, um, all the venues were open still, like the Key Club and the House of Blues, but unfortunately they they shut down. Mm -hmm. But like. Um, but when they were still open, I just got to see like 50 years of music just right before my eyes. I was just going into like a time traveling machine. And, you know, I got to cover the doors at the House of Blues, like without Jim Morrison, of course, but like other people <laughs> stepped in to sing for them. And I'm like, this is unreal. Like I got to like just see it all. And and it was just like, you know, it it was a place for like all our, the misfits and the black sheep. It was that, yeah. that part of L.A. that I loved, like. It didn't matter what you look like or what you were wearing. Just you were accepted. Yeah. And and like you know the I would frequent the Rainbow all the time, and they would always remember my favorite drink, and it was like an Arnold Palmer, and they would always have it ready for it. like as soon as I walk in the door, they knew what I wanted, and they're like, "Oh, you guys are the best," you know. Of course, I drank water, but like they knew that Arnold Palmer was at this uh, for this table, and it was fantastic. And um, if you don't know what an Arnold Palmer is, it's half iced tea, half lemonade, and. And like Clive turned me into a tea fiend, you know, and because he drinks a lot of tea. And I remember making tea for him all the time. And um, it was fantastic. I mean, I got to, you know, it was I was thankful to see all these shows for free because I as a journalist, because I couldn't have afforded any of this stuff like 
as like a regular person um mm. as a regular spectator mm. and of course like instead of like like you know knowing that i had these shows for free i took the money that i um made i i would spend it on the bands and i would buy merch from them because i mm. wanted them to have like some kind of money from me like i want i have like a big old trash bag at home with just nothing but band shirts all across the board from punk to hip-hop to everything and they're like, this bag weighs like 50 pounds. And like, I'm like, I don't know what to do with it. Like my closet's full of black concert shirts. And now I'm <laughs> fortunate to have my own concert shirts and tour shirts now. And yeah. it's just, a, it came back full circle and I couldn't have asked for more. There was a, there was an always, a, when I used to go, I used to do the same, I used to write and review and interview bands. And I always felt a little bit guilty if I didn't buy something from them. I thought, I've, I've got into the venue for free. I've got a great seat or a great position. I've got to meet the band and talk to the band. The least I can do is buy a CD or, or buy a T-shirt or whatever. I always felt really guilty if I didn't do something like that, you know. Oh, yeah. uh, merch. It's, it's something that stuck with me forever. Even when now I, I tour managed and went out with bands, I still kind of – made sure that I kind of bought something from the bands I'd seen in some way or supported them, you know? Um, so you, at this point now, you were, you're with Clive. And then um, when does the, the Rizzo and when do the, the Wu-Tang Clan come into it then? I imagine it's around this time that that happens. Yep. It was uh, the last week of my summer internship with Clive back in mm -hmm. 2009. And um, the, the Saturday before I had to leave, I went and saw the Method Man, Red Man, and Ghostface Killer show at the House of Blues on Sunset Strip. Yeah. And um, I I was pretty much just minding on my business and just going to that early show because I only could afford, only for, afford one show because they had two shows that day. And uh, they saw my clothes and they saw how old it was, like the merch people did. And they were like, hey, um, that show, that shirt's pretty old. And I'm like, it looks like you need a new one. And you know, they were trying to get my money. And, of course, I'm like, sure. oh, I know I'm going to buy merch from you guys. That's why I'm here. <laughs> and um, so I bought all their merch and everything. And they go, do you want to stay for the second show? And I'm like, I don't have any funds to stay for the second show. He goes, no problem. We'll give you a backstage pass VIP bracelet. And you can just come in at, uh, when they let everybody else in. I'm like, this is awesome, you know. And before I, you know, I um, people thought I worked for the Wu Tang Clan, and the Wu Tang Clan thought I was working for the House of Blues because, like, you know, with the bracelet and the outfit. Yeah. And then I saw Risen Ghostface Killer walk down the uh, the ramp, and I'm like, holy moly, this is awesome, you know. And I was first in line and everything. And um, they, uh, I stayed for the second show, and the comedian Cat Williams was there, and he was handing out Dom Perignon and throwing money off the balcony, and he offered me some Dom Perignon, and I declined them because I don't drink. And then um, I, I was waiting for my car, the valet, uh, uh, valet, and and this guy noticed my shirt again, and because it had holes in it and it was really old and faded. And he goes, "Man, that's a really old shirt." And he goes, "I'm Armel, I'm Jizz's artist." I'm like, "No way, this is L.A. It's all smoke and mirrors." He goes, "And uh, you don't sound like you're from around here." I'm like, "I'm not. I'm from Colorado. I'm just out here doing an internship." And he goes, "For what?" And I'm like, "I'm just uh, with Clive Barker at the moment." Um, and, uh, you know, the guy that did Hellraiser and Candyman and stuff. And he goes, yeah, I know the guy. And um, he goes, well, um, here's my number. And then I, I drove off and then I, I kept in touch with him over the weekend. And I hear um, I called him, you know, as he told me to. And, and I hear Riz's voice in the background. I'm like, holy moly, this is true. And then um, we scheduled a, a meeting for the Wednesday. And that didn't happen because um, his schedule conflicted. But the cool thing is I got to um, have lunch with them, Phil and Sarah, um, Clive's uh, former employees and Ashley Lawrence from Hellraiser one and two there. 
And um, and then on the Friday, um, RZA finally appears at Clive's studio. And I'm like, I was hoping to introduce them, but uh, they didn't end up meeting, which I was pretty sad about, you know? And I was like making a big deal at the office. Like, hey, you know, RZA did kill Bill the score, you know? And yeah. and, and like, um, and it was so awesome. You got to meet him and stuff. And I was texting Clive, like going, you know, d- just jumping off the walls, you know? But I just ended up taking Riza on a three-hour tour. Or, uh, like a, a, well, I, hung, I spent three hours with him, and I gave him a grand tour of the studio and showed him Clive's paintings and showed him, like, Clive's comic book collection. And it turned out that Clive had some Wu-Tang comic books in his collection because they had alphabetized everything from, like, from company to company and everything. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, Riza, check out the W section in that box over there. And he did, and then he saw, like, there's Wu-Tang comic books in here. That's respect. And I'm like, yeah, this is wild, isn't it? And then he saw a big old Hellraiser 2 poster. He goes, that movie scared me. And I'm like, yeah, that movie was, that scared me too, you know? And then, um, and, you know, Quentin, like, you know, with RZA working with Quentin and Quentin looking up to Clive, you know, with this quote that said, you know, to call Clive Barker a horror writer is like calling the, the Beatles a garage band. Yeah. And so it was like all, it was like all these six degrees of separation going on. Mm. And, and Rizzo was like, I'm not going to work with Clive if you, you know, if you're not a part of it, because I know you got to go back to school on Monday. And I'm like, I know it sucks so bad, you know. But, you know, Rizzo, um, and Rizzo went away and Clive walked into the, the studio and he gave me his reasoning why he couldn't meet with Rizzo because he was riding an emotional, an emotional roller coaster because uh, it was like my last day. And he was like sobbing. And then I was organizing his library and I started sobbing, you know, he goes, what's going on, you know, and. He goes, I'm going to miss you, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to miss you, too. And he goes, come over to my place. And I got something for you. So he went up to his bedroom and there was um, his uh, his uh, but, uh, butler at the time. He had him grab like a painting off the wall in his bedroom and uh, Clive autographed it. And he like wrote a little note on the back of it. He goes, after um, after your final semester of college happens, um, which is like, you know, this following semester, I want you to hang this up in your office. And I'm like, holy crap, so that means I'm coming back? I'm like, yep, you're coming back. And then I spent like three years with him, and that's how like the Risen Clive Barker story happened. Wow. That's a that's a that's huge, isn't it? What a what a, a huge sort of two worlds. And it's not so unreasonable to think that those worlds collide because there is this like a huge fan of films. It's it's well known. You know, you think about Liquid Swords and stuff like that, and and the stuff he was sampling from Shogun Assassin and things like that. There's no surprise the guy's going to be hugely fan of Clive's work as well, you know, and horror and that type of thing. The, the, the worlds aren't that removed. It's nice though that you were kind of straddling in that and helped help that move that along. And it must have, like you say, you know, it gives you currency that if you if you're working with Clive, that at least you know people will know that you're not crazy. You're not, you know, you're not a crazy fanboy, even though you enjoy the work. You, you, you can you're doing a job there. You're curating for for, for Clive essentially and helping you know, organizes his collections and what have you and and kind of helping it. Because one of the things that people may not realize that someone like Tom Savini as well has a huge mass of stuff that they've amassed from from years of producing art and years of producing work. And it's, it's, you know, everybody's got that room or that closet that's full of things. When you're as prolific and as talented as someone like Clive, that's going to be tenfold. And you so you need someone to look out for you. You need someone to help you with that. So when you're working with these people, you must have got tremendously inspired as well. You know, when you see someone as prolific as the Rizzer and the prolific as Clive, who were constantly doing stuff and constantly challenging themselves. Did you start to think, what do I want to do with my life? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I pulled those two worlds together, you know, and like, you know, RZA was known as up with part of the Grave Diggers, which is like a horrorcore, like hip hop. Yeah, group. yeah. And then he kept on bringing it up. And I'm like, I've never heard of Grave Diggers. And I felt so bad, you know. And then when he left, I did my research on Grave Diggers, of course. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's 1-800-Suicide, you know. That was on um, Tales from Amy the Crypt. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm like, this is great. Because, like, you know, um, Clive was known as a Hellraiser. And then, like, um, Rizzo was known as being a Grave Digger. And so, like, and then when they, when they, when they were, like, you know, one was digging, one was raising. They kind of <laughs> met me in the middle. And I'm like, this is your, your baby. Yeah, this is, yeah. like. This is pretty awesome. But yeah, it was like, I, I, I just, as soon as I, every day that I went to the studio, like I lived in Sherman Oaks, um, which is like, you know, down the street from Beverly Hills. Um, I was like, pretty much like, you know, every time I walked into the studio, I was like hit with inspiration to create something, whether it was a painting or a writing or, or something like that. And every, t- every night after the, the, leaving the Sunset Strip, I would go to Clyde's office because he gave me the keys to it. And um, I would just like write my articles after every concert and I try not to fall asleep, but he goes, if you need, if you need a couch to crash on or a bed, there's always one for you here. And like, so that way you don't drive down cold water Canyon and stuff like that and get into a wreck. And I'm like, I'm so thankful for that to happen. Cause those concerts would like end at midnight and I would stay there till like two in the morning or three in the morning and, and right. And, and, and just all that um, from like, you know, with Risen and Clive being like, kind of like my teachers in a way mm. or my mentors and you know and him being I'm being Clyde's apprentice for four years and learning from RZA for three hours you know it just meant a lot like you know I, I ran into RZA a couple times after you know I went to like um his show uh he was on the same bill as the doors at the Sunset Strip music festival at the key club and Quentin Tarantino was back there with him and I asked for both their autographs and stuff and then I reunited with RZA at the uh at the Rock the Bells launch party at the um at the house of blues again. And he goes, I asked him, Hey, do you remember this picture? He goes, yeah, man, that's so rad. And he goes, yeah. Um, I was hoping like, you know, you we would all just restart this thing. Cause I'm back for like a little while mm-hmm. and he goes, it'll happen. But, um, it did kind of happen. Cause like, um, in the movie Nightbreed, the director's cut, um, it came out in 2014. I never asked for Clive to put me my name in a movie. That was like my Hollywood dream, but I never asked him for it, you know? And if you watch the movie and you um, wait to like the last three end credit slides, you'll see my name in there. And there's like Quentin Tarantino's movie theater on top of my name. And so like everything just came back together full circle, like, you know, with the RZA, the Quentin, the Clive connection and myself. And it just all came back again, full circle and it just closed that chapter. So it's pretty awesome. It's very, it's very awesome. It's very awesome. It's nice. Like you say, it's clear that the Clive and the RZA were very, much a mentor's role to kind of what you were doing. And I'm sure you got an enormous amount of advice and stuff and, and you know, got, got clued in pretty quickly. Like you say, Clive suggesting you go to all types of music and things like that and, and seeing that seems to be pretty, pretty radical. So then what at this stage, um, what are you, what are you listening to? Did you find, was there a particular band or an artist that you really gravitated to? Was it the Wu-Tang Clan where you were going, this, they're saying exactly what I want to hear and it's, or was it a particular artist or it was a particular band? Um, well, I don't know that with Clive, like um, the, he would teach me to like explore every single genre of music, you know, as I mentioned earlier. And like when I was with him in his office, he would share like, this is Barbra Streisand and this is yeah. like um the Harry Potter soundtrack. And we would go to that one. And I'm like, this is like, so like totally different you know and we just listened like i remember his cd collection was massive and sure. and i i would i would really li- I, like you know believe it or not while i was mostly out there out in la i would listen to 90s r&b and okay. that was like 
my cup of tea. Like sure. I would listen to like Jodeci and I would listen to like Tony, Tony, Tony and stuff like that. And, and it was like, and then like when I was like, you know, away from the office, like when I was like driving on the highway, I would listen to like acoustic music, like Jason Mraz or Adele or something, you know, and like there are yeah. like acoustic live albums. And then when I was driving to the city, I would like listen to like Alice in Chains or something more heavy. It would, <laughs> to put up know, with the traffic and the, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the road rage and what have you. That's yeah, because like like Sunset Strip traffic is like the worst, you know, and like mm-hmm. and like the you know, I got to be calm on the one hundred one or the four hundred five to be like I got to listen to acoustic music on here. Like I would put on like uh, Alice in Chains Unplugged because that, that's one of my favorite albums, you know. Right. And I would always find comfort in acoustic albums on the highway for some reason. Yeah. But Just I would calmness, like yeah, yeah, and that's the way you got to live out there. It's like because it's so hectic and crazy out <laughs> there. Yeah. yeah. So at this point now, you've graduated now. Is is that is that right? You graduated. I mean, when uh, when you're working with Clive and stuff, how long was it then when you graduated? Uh, I moved out right after um, like that, um, and I stayed with him for like three years. Um, right. I was his apprentice, and I was learning. Like he had like two other people that worked for him, so I learned from them while um, mm-hmm. while Clive was working on his other stuff, like Abrad and all the all the other stuff that he was working on. Yeah. And so like. Um, <laughs> Did you ever think about writing like um, scripts and and larger form like books and that type of thing, like like Clive had done? Did you ever feel the need to do that? Um, I did write some scary stories at his place. Okay. Um, uh, they were like um, really intense, you know. And I was like, man, like I would, you know, it gave me the op- it gave me the option to kill people, and like I was writing horror <laughs> stuff. Like it gave me the option to like write like kills people and like um makes like right sex scenes you know because like he had like you know like some nude scenes in his movies and they would always make me like my heart beat faster and i'm like i don't think i can handle this anymore and (laughs) it was too intense and he and i would like um his vp at the time like i would let him read my stuff you know and he goes man that scared me for like three weeks straight like i don't know how such a nice person can go into such a dark (laughs) place (laughs) Isn't it funny that, that we, there's a there's a lo- wonderful connection between aggressive music and and horror and stuff? Is that the people that make these these this, these forms of art that are normally like absolutely horrific and and terrifying? They're normally lovely people. It's yeah. like they kind of exercise all that uh, anxiety and frustration and anger through their art form. You know that someone that comes up with something like Pinhead and the Xenobites. Is is them you know extolling kind of all this anger? And it's the same with like you know the 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 rap guys and stuff like someone like Be Real, who's like a huge character on stage, is this wonderful relaxed guy off stage. You know, someone like you know Eminem talks very softly off stage. You know, I love that, and the, the metal guys share that as well, where they, they kind of get it all out through their music or their their art form. I think that's a beautiful thing. So. Where, what happens then when you kind of finish up with uh, your, your internship then after three years? What happens then? Oh, man, everyone was sad, of course. And I was sad because I was like, you know, like the eyes and the years pretty much. And like everyone came, come, came to me with all their problems. And, you know, it felt like I was like the glue that held everyone together, you know, and, and, and that meant a lot. You know, I was like, I just didn't want to get paid. And I just didn't. I was like, the walls were closing in on me with the Sunset Strip and and like, you know, with the venues closing and I'm like, I just, my, it's just ripping out my heart and soul, like, you know, and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And I, it was just too much for me. And then when I decided to leave, um, they were sad and I was sad. And it was like the, the longest 20 dry, 20 hour drive home that I ever had. 
And I remember like staying on like Clive's couch for seven days until I finally had to like said, all right, enough is enough. I got to go back home to Colorado. Sure. And I decided, you know, I was, I, my career did, like ended up going backwards. I felt like, you know, I was like top of the mountain with Clive and, you know, yeah. writing about all these big old musicians that I just grew up listening to, you know, with like either on top 40 radio or whatever, and just discovering new ones, like all that stuff. And, and, and I was like, why don't I just turn my power and, and use what I've learned from Clive and what I learned from journalism and focus it on my hometown of Pueblo, Colorado and see what happens. Sure. And, so for, for those people listening that maybe have never been to the States, um, the the difference between L.A. and Colorado is night and day. Um, L.A. is is very much a metropolis. It's very, very – it's like London or New York as much as it's, it's, it's always on. It's very, very busy, especially central L.A. It's very bustling, like, like, like Treth says about the live scene is there's constantly something going on. Sunset Strip's constantly busy. But then Colorado is 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 like a the the thing you would imagine the the wildlands of, of the U.S. is like Colorado. It's beautiful. It's right by the Rocky Mountains. It's 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 kind of and we one of my favorite places in, in, in and around Colorado is a, a place called Esther, and um, where we went to it was very beautiful. Tiny places. Even Colorado itself is is not that is not that sort of uh, intense, as shall I say, as as L.A. That must have really kind of changed your aspect, and it must have given you some a nice time for perspective where you could step back and go, "Okay, what do I want to do?" Is that what happened? Yeah, I mean, I was like, I was tired of like the like really living like the expensive life. You know, yeah. uh, it was like too expensive and um, too stressful. Knowing that I was like the only one out in LA, and I needed to go back home and and make an impact and and uh, like. Um, so I, I still had that uh, newspaper gig and it was like a national platform. And, and I started, I didn't want to drive up to Denver anymore because it was like two hours away from my home. And I focused, you know, my attention on the local bands and, and most of my town is mostly metal and, and, um, stuff like that and rock and roll. And I, I never thought that, like, I was thinking, you know, um, it's probably like, um, there was like a hip hop scene at the time and there was like hard, like, um, few jazz bands and stuff like that but it was mostly metal and so I, I started writing about the bands and experiencing um more walls of death there was no photo pit to protect me um <laughs> so i was like stuck in everything like i'm just like holding myself like front row trying to get good shots you know just feeling it just like mosh pits behind me crowd surfing everything and i felt it all which is fantastic sure. and um and I wrote about it the way that I found my voice. Like I, I just like perfected it. And then I said, Hey guys, um, I'm going to move again to Florida. And I just want three bands and three comics. And, and I tagged one member of each band that I wrote about and they go, we all want in on this. And I'm like, Holy crap, you know? So I guess um, I'll just turn into a festival. And so like a, like a one night only show turned into a three day festival and I booked everybody that like responded. Yes, we want to be a part of this. <laughs> and at the time, like I felt bad because I couldn't pay them, you know, and they're like, we don't need any money from you. You've done like more stuff for our careers than anybody else have done in this town. Like you definitely like you took the time to interview us and write reviews for our bands and made us look amazing on this national platform. 
and took photos of us and never asked a dime from us. So why would we ask a dime from you? And I'm like, this is amazing. So this is a really cool going away party, I guess, like for a three-day festival with like metal and hip hop and jazz and all the other genres of music and comedians too. Yeah. And um, and then it started, uh, it stuck with me for like seven years now, or we're going on seven years this year. And and now that I'm okay, I can I can r- save money and raise funds for them and make sure they get money in their pockets and food in their bellies and and um, buying merch from them with my merch sales. And then I, you know, play trivia with the crowd and I give away those as prizes. So it's like our own home distribution deal. So it works out for everybody and everyone's happy to do it every year. And I, I get to like pay them to put on a half hour show and all that good stuff. And they just love being a part of it every year, whether it's paid or not. They go, we just love being a part of it. And I'm like, I got to put something in your stomach or in your pockets, you know, or something, you know, and, and they're just like, I'm just honored for them to be a part of it every year and bringing the whole town together. I think that's, that's a wonderful mindset. And I think it's, it, it, it seems to have happened really organically, which is, which is really nice that it's, when we were talking uh, previously via messages and what have you, you essentially said you fell into becoming a promoter. I, I, I think you're you're getting, you're not letting yourself off the hook with that comments. I think you may have found your calling rather. Um, I think the love that you have for your local scene um, and the love that you have for, for the music of whatever genre you put on comes across. It comes across in your writing, and it comes across. I hope the listeners. Will 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 appreciate that it. it comes across now in the way you talk about about music. That probably begs a very obvious question at this point, Reth. Have you ever thought about creating music yourself? Um, when it hits me, um, I actually did write a song um, that I'm quite proud of. It's like a parody <laughs> of Puddle of Mud's "She Hates Me." Okay. Uh, it's called "I Masturbate Me." And... <laughs> And my very first st- uh, comedy show that I produced um, that I was ever on was my roast, um, kind of like the old Don Rickles roast, you know, and yeah, yeah. Central. And just like a classic version like that, like Richard Pryor and whatever. Mm. And um, I performed it at the very end of it and it's on YouTube and it's like 500 views now. So it's fantastic. <laughs> like, so my- let's, let's talk about that. That's interesting that you bring up as well, the stand up comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I've been watching a few of you, the, the things that you've, the, the links that you've had of, of some of the stand-up show, and it's really interesting. It's a really, it's not, um, it's not like kind of one one-liners. It's it's a very much kind of a lovely journey through your life. You know, being Cambodian and and, and that whole kind of movie. And I thought it was fascinating. So when did that start? When did you first think, okay, I'm going to do some stand-up comedy? The funny thing is, is like it happened at Clive's place. Um, out of all places because i would like do everything i could to make clive laugh because like you know he was writing horror and stuff and like i would tell him random jokes and i would tell him random stories from my adventures in la he goes sreth have you ever tried stand up and i'm like nope not in a million years and like <laughs> his um his employees were there too and he goes well promise us one thing like bef- like i might not be able to make it because of like i'm busy and stuff but promise these guys that before you move back home to colorado you do an open mic at a coffee shop and and that's where I started was like at the Jump Cut Cafe in Studio City. And I did like five minutes and I was so nervous. I have this like Wu-Tang superhero <laughs> alter ego. And um, they were like, all right, no turning back, Sarah. 
you got to do um, five minutes for us. And I'm like, all right, I'll dress up as Wu Manchu, my superhero, Alter Ego. <laughs> <laughs> and I signed up as Wu Manchu. And like the host was like, um, we've never had a superhero do stand up before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got one now. <laughs> yeah. So I go there and like some of my like my glory hole joke was like one of the first things that I talked about, you know, and because I, I I went to one because I didn't I, I was like I, I didn't know what it was in, in in California and my my friend from like my other job was hitting on me and I was like, all right, this has to end. So I got to scare him a little bit. So we went to a glory hole. It was just nuts. <laughs> and it evolved into one of my jokes. And um. Sure. And then um, I took off my mask and everything. I switched my shirt I, after I got off stage. And he goes, hey, where did that superhero go? I needed him to do five more minutes. And uh, yeah. and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. And he goes, ah, oh, so you're pulling an Andy Kaufman on me, you know, like with his <laughs> it's, a mask. it's a mask. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I guess I am. And so I started doing open mics at home. And then that festival happened. And then my four months later, my first show happened. And then, like, I started doing more stand-up in Florida because I was, like, an hour away from Jacksonville, Daytona, and Orlando. And I considered myself, like, a Daytona Beach comic because they were more welcoming of my style and uh, mm. being, like, a really dirty comic, you know, without saying any curse words on stage. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I love painting pictures because I get to be my, like, own writer, director, and producer on stage. And whatever happens on stage happens. And just seeing, like, you know, seeing all those bands and back in the day, I was like, man, I got to feel that energy. Like I want to, I want to know what it's like to feel that energy. Whether it's mm. four people in the audience or it's like completely sold out, I'm gonna give them my all. Mm. And and sure enough, I got to perform like in front of like sold out theater in Atlanta at the Relapse Theater. It was like people were sitting on the ground and people were like standing in the very back because like there was no more seats and it was like grilled cheese being made in the corner. And like Simon Bamford from Hellraiser One and Two and Nightbreed, he filmed my set for me and. And like, you could hear like a pin drop because it was so silent with like my storytelling. Yeah. And I'm like, this is wild. Like I've never experienced like six minutes of silence, but when the laughs needed were to be there, they were there like every single time. Yeah. And like, um, you could hear like the moans and the groans when I get really dirty and graphic. And it was just like, this is so awesome. And, and that's the sign of the great comedians is, um, is silence. So silence is, is good and bad. So if you're really bad as a stand-up comedian and it's silence, obviously that's really bad. You'd expect people to be laughing. But if you're really good, if you're great, then those silent moments are the audience buying in and they're yeah. listening intently. They're waiting, they're waiting, and they're with you on that journey. And that's the best thing. One of the things, if you ever go to a, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever, do ever go to a comedy club, the biggest sort of uh, faux pas you can make is to talk during someone's set. Because you're not allowing them in, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't talk at a music show whilst the band was playing a great song. So why do that while someone's speaking? Did you go through um, uh, some stages, or did you find your feet fairly quickly with stand up? Because the stand up I've seen seems pretty well put together. Um, did it come quickly, or did it have to be workshopped and workshopped and workshopped? It's got constantly work and grind. Like I hit up like open mics to perfect them and. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. like people would hear the same jokes, and I'm just trying to like add tweaks to it, like add a tag to it, or like punch it up mm -hmm. a little bit more. And like people, some people would get tired of it, but some people would be like, "All right, I love this joke. Keep working on it. Let's see how you get there." And like mm -hmm. Clyde's former VP was like, "You almost got it. You know, whenever you have that story, <laughs> just keep on working at it, grind those gears, and see what happens." And that's what it taught me out there. It was like him teaching me that, and and mm -hmm. that's what. Like, cause we can't practice at home. Cause like we need an audience. We need that automatic feedback that, mm. that 
that quick turnaround, like, all right, we'll just make them laugh. I've always found it extraordinary that as a comedian, you can do a bit and it can kill at one place and bomb at another. Oh, yeah. That would would drive me insane that you can work on a whole comedy section and kill three, four shows, absolutely kill it, and then go bomb. I would go mental. It's all about reading the audience and and the flow of of what they – and I didn't realize that this – my friend um, Massey is a comedian and – and he, I didn't realize that it's all about reading the audience, that you can place a dirty joke at a certain point or a dark joke, and you can move that as you listen to the crowd. You kind of react. There's not a set list like it is a band where it's like we're playing this song, then this song, then this song. It's very much like you're kind of feeling out the, the envelope of the crowd. Okay, they like this. They're going to like this. How far can I go with this? And I love that intimacy with the audience that, that, that stand-up comedy has. I think it's fascinating. Um, and that's why I think... Some of the greats that do it, like Pryor, is that there's a wonderful way. He's he's obviously doing bits that he's practiced, but within those things, he's reacting to the audience. Um, And I've always found that fascinating, terrifying for a stand-up comedian, but but, but fascinating nonetheless, yeah. Oh, yeah, and and I've never written down any jokes because all those stories that I tell on stage come from, like, a real place for, like, but I got to like embellish it a little bit, you know, I got to add like a little lie to it, but like 95% of it's true. And, um, and, and I don't go on stage with any notes, you know, I could do like a half an hour without any notes and I'm trying to build more onto that. Um, but, um, it's fantastic. I mean, like, like you said, like one minute, like one place you would do super well and then like mm-hmm. another place you would bomb. And, and that's exactly what happened in Denver. Like I, I performed at the, um, Comedy Works downtown, which is a legendary club in downtown Denver. And my name was drawn out of a hat and people were going like that day, the comedians that were hosting that show, they were constantly roasting me and my best friend because I took him to the show. And um, and they were roasting us the whole night, making fun of his tattoos and the way we looked and stuff like that, because we look totally different. We shouldn't be best friends at all. Like He's more <laughs> metal and I'm more hip hop, you know, <laughs> and um and so, like, um, they were making fun of us, and uh, they pulled me on stage because, like, my name was in their bucket for, like, their, you know, to draw a name to do, like, four minutes on stage. Yeah. And, like, they picked, they pointed out to the two other contestants, and no one cheered for them. And then when they cheered for me, they went nuts, you know, they're like, we want to hear what this kid has to say because you guys were roasting him the whole night. Yeah. And so I did my four minutes, and the crowd just went nuts for it, you know. And then, like, a couple years later, I went and did um, a five, like, a five-minute thing show, um, part of a show at, the mutiny information cafe and just bombed just no <laughs> laughter just completely silent and i'm like oh man this is so rough and it was the same jokes that i used at that place that i did over there nothing, nothing. i'm like it was just stone cold like steve austin i'm like oh, <laughs> <laughs> even even bands have like a, a song that they go listen if the crowd's not with us so much we'll pull out our big hits we'll pull out our big song but you're on there. You're on your own, and and you know, I, it's funny you mentioned we, we talk about prior when he did um, on the Sunset Strip when he did that famous uh, concert on the Sunset Strip. the The story is that that was over two nights, and uh, the second night is the one that we see, and which is you know arguably some of the greatest stand up that's ever existed, and he's and he's on fire and he's brilliant, but apparently the night before he'd also done some time there, done like an hour and a half there. And bombed, and it was awful in his mind. 
and he gets off stage and says to his wife, you know, that's it. I'm I'm just I'm not gonna I don't even I might even quit comedy. It was that in his mind, he was that bad. Richard Pryor was that bad that he he, he bombed that bad. And his wife was like, Well, you know, listen, go out through the next day, uh, the next the next night, and just throw everything you've got at it and just go at it. And then he comes out and he does that. And you think uh, I'll just the resiliency to be a stand-up comedian is is enormous. It's, I respect stand I've done I've compared. Um, and had to be funny for very short periods of time in between bands and what have you. And I've just about got away with it to do five minutes, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, five minutes in stand up comedy is about 700 years on stage. It, it is a long time. You think you can tell a joke for five minutes? It's it's a long, long time. So when someone gets up like Briar and does like an hour and a half and it's brilliant, that's because he's a genius. Did you, um, did you then do? Were you comparing at your uh, um, concerts as well? Did you said you got up and talked to the crowd? Were you doing that as well? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm very approachable off stage too, and um, and I think that's what people love about me. It's like I bring value. Like not only do I bring value to like my like um, the comics because I interview them and I photograph them for free and everything like that, and like um, but I, I I'm a you know I'm very approachable and people love my jokes, you know, and they always like look forward to like my sex position acts, and they're just like. Uh, my fellow friend, his name is Kevin, out in Daytona. He goes, Seth, I know it's coming, no pun intended. And <laughs> these jokes are really dirty. I know it's coming. And, and just to like hear you say it like a million times doesn't phase me anymore. Mm. But then what my favorite part is when I look at other people in the audience that don't know what that's expecting. They're not, yeah. They don't know what they're expecting. And you just get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And they're just like cringing and cringing. And it's like the best feeling in the world as <laughs> as a fellow comic and a spectator. I get to see that, and it's just I love it every time. And he used to run a room at a at a pool sh- uh, a pool place like a billiards place. Mm. And I I cut my my record album there. Um, it was like you know very talkative. I'll send you the link as soon as um, um the, you know uh, we part ways and stuff. But yeah. it's called Sex Jokes and Rock and Roll instead of Sex Drugs and Rock and Roll. Sure. And I called it sex jokes and rock and roll because I make reference to like Marilyn Manson puns in there. There's um, the puddle of mud song that I sang. And, um, and I, I referenced the Beatles and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and, and five finger um, death punch. And, and there's just so many of these rock bands that you wouldn't expect in this comedy album that I reference, and just, mm-hmm. and just, People love it for some reason, so it's fantastic. <laughs> it's probably because it's funny, but probably because it comes from it comes from your heart. You know, you mean it, and you're talking about things that you enjoy and make you laugh and amuse you. And that's all. That's all good comedy is, because then it makes it relatable. People, if you're honest, and it's like writing, if you're honest, people will see that and hear that and read that, and it will come across if you if you're genuine. Um, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that you, well, when you when we put some links up to Threat's kind of whole work is you will see he's got an incredible amount of what they call hustle. Um, Threat is just, it seems like you're constantly working. It seems like you're constantly working on another project, constantly working on yourself and, and, and improvements as well. And I find that very, very inspirational. And what, where are we now with the concert that you, you do now? Where are we with that? And what have you? What are your plans now, kind of going forward as well? I think a lot of people would be interested to hear that. Um, I I was planning on retiring from stand up because I felt like I did everything that I ever wanted to do with stand up. Yeah. Uh, but like um, Joe Coy, like the he's like a world famous comedian. I yeah. went and saw him, and we hung out backstage one time, and he grabbed my phone and he gave me this amazing 
co-sign again like Clive did. I'm like, and then I kept on getting, I got accepted into my very first festival this year. And I'm like, oh man, so other than my own. And so I'm like, I guess I can't leave stand up alone now because like Koi <laughs> co-signed me. Yeah. And now I'm getting accepted into these festivals now. So I guess a, a part of me will start keep doing stand up and still interviewing comics and mm. and photographing them from the stage. Um, I started doing storytelling because I noticed that my storytelling uh, was from it was like a common thread with Clive and horror and stand up. Uh, that's all my stand up is a, a big old storytelling thing from beginning to end. Mm. Um, and so I started a room at the Corazon Cinnamon Cafe in San Augustine, Florida, which is like the nation's oldest city. And that's been going monthly, except for like the, you know, the COVID-19 kind of like derailed it a little bit, but we're picking it back up at the end of the month. Um, that's happening every last Thursday. I'm producing my festival again, um, which is we're going on seven years strong. And the design is amazing. I keep everything um, amongst my circle of friends. Like my friend, Charlie McMullen, he's, uh, he does the artwork for it. And it's a, like a, I put the characters from Hellraiser into Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because like um, Hunter S. Thompson and Clive Barker are like my two biggest inspirations when it comes oh, to writing. Sure. And then, um, so he, he's been drawing all that like the past, you know, couple years. And then my buddy Barrett Skull, he's in a band called Sonic Vomit and they're like an 8-bit, you know, they have an 8-bit sound like Nintendo and like Mortal Kombat. Yeah, and yeah. and um, so he's he prints out all my merch. So I keep everything like in the circle of artists so that way more money keeps on coming to us. Yeah, yeah. And then I've been, I've, I'm producing a comedy show called uh, um, High and Dry Comedy Show, where it's like you got to pick two topics. Um, it's kind of like um, set list um, stand up without a net. If you've ever seen that, that's amazing. Robin Williams yeah. was on there. And so they pick out two topics and they have to joke on it for like two minutes. Like there's no like set list. You can't use your old jokes, you know? Mm. And then I think over, over here we had it as it was called. Um... Ah, uh, what was it called? Whose line is it anyway? We have a similar thing like that. Yeah, where it kind of should you give and jump off points and, and you do that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then I'm producing another storytelling show that I'm taking on the road called Loose Leaf, uh, uh, a storytelling show, kind of like I'm um, off the paper. So like it's like real life stories that kind of like this is not happening or the moths uh, NPR. So those are like my storytelling rooms that I'm producing. And like now, no, there's no pressure of making people laugh, but like people getting people engaged in the storytelling and entertain them. Like, yeah. It's a very old art form and that I love too. So it's mm. fantastic. One of the one of the last sorts of bastions of free speech is the spoken word, is stand up comedy, and one person getting up on a stage and going, "This is what I think. This is what I believe. These are my beliefs." Whether you agree or what they are, this is what I think. I'll either try and convert you to what I'm thinking or put up arguments to do that. I one of the things that crops up when I talk to my uh, my other friend who's a comedian is that how important comedy is in order to help people find who they are. And by that I mean that um, you should go to see a comedian who will offend you, if you will, or will challenge your political beliefs or your racial beliefs or if you, any kind of stance you have on something should be challenged. And the reason it, it's important is because those things, when they're challenged, um, if if, you, if you're if you a fool and you believe something foolish and it gets challenged, it just dissipates completely. And the best way to do that is with comedy. When something's laughed at, it reduces it to nothing. It reduces it to being, you know, rid the ridiculousness it is. Be a parody, 
or be it any kind of you know any kind of wit like that. I, and I feel that like it's certainly uh, in this country, stand up is one of the last bastions of that. Is that the case in the states? Is it still um, you, you find yourself getting up and saying and talking about stuff, and it's still there's still states and still places that you can't talk about certain things, or you have to be careful. Oh yeah, nowadays everyone's you know uh, very soft and sensitive. It feels mm. like you know, and that's why people people heckle here and mm. and you know they argue from the stage and like people can't get to their sets and people are very like if you can't handle like a, a stand up show, why are you there? You know, yeah. that people came to see the person on stage. You know, and and that's what's like very challenging. But for me, like when people heckle me, I just like bounce off me like. Like, yeah, okay. You know, I bounce it off of me, like, all right, I'm gonna go back to my stuff and just like um agree with them to disagree. So that well, way, the, can opening, carry on. the opening part of one of your stand up things is where you 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 ask people where do you think you're from? You say, Oh, you think I'm from Asia or whatever it may be, and and you and you you put it on front street straight away. I thought that was incredibly you know endearing to you that you did that, and you were actually, I'm Cambodian, and this is it. I think it's um. It's it's very clear to me that it's something that um is you you should stay doing. By the way, Shreth, I think I think yes, you, you you're not allowed to retire, ladies and gentlemen. Will we let Shreth retire from comedy? No, we won't. Uh, <laughs> I think it's something that it, it seems very natural to you, and that's that's something that all should be embraced. So now you're taking stuff on the road. Is that the first time you've ever toured anything? Um, my first tour actually happened uh, with a Florida Georgia tour. And I did like uh, 14 shows in 10 days, wow. like back to back to back. And it was just perfectly aligned with the stars. And mm-hmm. everything that I ever wanted to be happen on tour happened. Like I forgot mm-hmm. my money at home and my dad wired me $400, you know. Sure. And and I um, uh, people were like not paying attention in one room. And people were in, totally engaged at the theater in Atlanta, like completely mm-hmm. engaged. I did three minutes here. I did a half hour there and like wherever. You know, I did it like a, a bar to a theater to like an actual theater, like a movie theater. And it was just like everything that I ever wanted um, was like perfect. And I, I made, you know, I didn't make any money on that tour. Like who does when they're on tour? Like I, I saved up about 400 bucks for like the hotels and everything. And then I came back home and I looked at my wallet and there was like 40 bucks left. And I'm like, it wasn't about the money. It was about sure, the no, no. Henry Rollins calls um, tours and, um, avant-garde camping trips where essentially you yeah, you kind of make your way around and and what maybe the ladies and gentlemen listening to the, to the show will realize it, it sometimes is that to tour the states is it is to do 14 shows in and of itself is difficult but the traveling and the road miles that are involved in that are unbelievable but what happens when you go on those long hauls if you will is you learn a lot about yourself you real you realize you're not made of glass and you can take a, a bit of punishment and you can you find an enormous amount about yourself. I'd recommend to anybody to tour if they're in a band or, or certainly if the stand-up comedians to travel the, the length and breadth of the country that they're in to, because it really does give you a, a lovely, wonderful outlook. Like you talk about Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, for maybe those people that are unaware, perfected gonzo journalism in so much that he completely involved himself within the, 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 the subject matter, be it the Hells Angels or the Daytona races, he completely involved himself into it, and that seems like the for for yourself, Treth, is that um, it's very important that you're at the grassroots uh, at a live show. You're in the pit, or you're on the stage, or you 
it seems that to me that, that that's incredibly important. What's the live music and entertainment scene aside from the coronavirus and the pandemic? What's that like in the US at the moment for music and for artists? Um, at the moment, I've seen people just live streaming their shows. Um, mm. Some venues opened up their venues, but like nobody's in there except for the band. And now they're playing yeah. to like, you know, like what we're doing on like live streaming now. And and that just takes away the magic. And mm. as much as I would love to have Threadfest um, live streamed, I'd much rather be like exchanging energies with the musicians and the comics. And there's like no other brotherhood or sisterhood or, or family reunion like, you know, the fest that I have going on. Mm. And that's what like breaks my heart when I hear about like the COVID just like, you know, um, and I've seen like all the venues with their GoFundMe campaigns and like halting all the small businesses and the venues. And I'm like, this is not good, you know, and but like at least they're go- they're, they keep their music going and they're playing for like and making PayPal tips and Venmo tips and stuff like that. Mm. And so it definitely made that live music experience like just on life support. And mm. it just breaks my heart, like especially someone that was actually in like Live, living for it, like either mm. on stage or as a spectator. Was it was it before the virus? Was it was it when it was having a difficult time before then? Uh, for the most part, for local shows, um, a lot of people didn't go out because like they were like marijuana was legalized, and I mm. saw like a huge decline really? um, in the Colorado scene. Mostly, like mm. nobody wanted to go out, and like Netflix was on, and people were just much rather watch TV. Mm. And what breaks my heart the most was like everyone would charge five bucks a cover to the show, right? But like nobody would, everyone would say, "Hey, what time do you go on?" or mm. "Or can you put me on the guest list?" Um, I don't want to pay the five bucks. But then when someone big comes in, like um, like a big act, they would spend like seventy bucks on a ticket to be like, I know, like thousands of feet away from from the stage, and yeah. they're not up close with the band. You know, it's like. Mm. It, it was worse when like that happened. Colorado, for, for those listening who maybe weren't aware, was one of the first states, if not the first states, to to legalize marijuana. It was something of a test case, wasn't it? It was something that, that kind of a lot of states were looking at it. Let's see how it works out when we do medical marijuana and that type of thing, and how we're going to do that, and all the rules and regulations. And a lot of states kind of took that information and made it their own and did other things with it. Um, well, you said it affected it, – that's interesting it affected the live scene then because people were more happy to just, you know, go home and, and smoke at home and kind of do it that way. I, I think that's like – yeah. I think one of the things that kind of gets brought up on the show a lot is um, people have forgot maybe or have been trained to not realise how, how good a live show is and the experience that you get there cannot be replicated. Um, you know, and we're bringing up maybe – certainly in this generation that's born from – immediacy of like streaming services and things like that that we've made we're maybe training a whole generation to realize that to to, sorry to be unaware of how important live music is absolutely there's no like i made like the coolest friends at these live shows and i met the coolest bands and comedians at these live shows and and pretty soon they're going to be like really famous and then you're going to be really mad at the ticket price but Still, yeah. you pay seventy-five bucks a ticket rather than go to a free show or a five-dollar show, which I do not get at all. No, like you mean? I mean, at these five-dollar shows and free shows, you get to like um, interact with them, and there's like no manager or publicist to worry about it or nothing like that. Like you can talk to them up close and personal, but then when they reach that famous 
and that's why I hope I never become famous, even though I've like, hung out with famous people. Like, I just don't want to be that. And um, I, I'd like to have people come up to me and like, be cool and just chat, you know, and talk about life off stage, and find out what my writing process is like if I have some for horror, but not for comedy for some reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and that's why I made my festival for free because I wanted people to be there for free and like experience the live bands and like treasure the local scene that we have because like they're gonna be big one day, just like you know everybody else that was big. They started somewhere, mm-hmm. and of course there was like four people in the audience, like my comedy shows or like or a sold out show, like my comedy shows. But like every year it gets bigger and bigger and then more people just show up and uh, I know I should charge at the door, but I just don't feel like it. You know, I'm like, I'd much rather see my friends on stage and have a good time sure. and bring everyone together. That's more yeah. important than money to me. So that, 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 I mean, for anybody willing to, what's the name of the festival? What, what What's the full name of the festival? Uh, Sareth Fest Music and Comedy Festival. That's, yeah, I didn't know the other last part. So. I'll put some links on the podcast as well to, to to that, but it's very clear. It's very clear when you go on the kind of the, 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 the social media that it's made with love. It's made with a lot of care. As a lot of the beginning, you know, a lot of the, the festivals sort of grew into brilliant things now. They started in those in those beginnings. We talk about like, you know, we have a festival over here called Bloodstock that was started in a very small hall and, and, and bloomed into this beautiful thing now. Same as something like Woodstock was originally started by a couple of people just wanting to put on a show for the people. Obviously, it became this massive thing. These things are started by people like yourself, Shreth, who kind of are willing to do this to maybe no make no financial, you know, uh, bonus out of it, but purely for the for the love of it. If if I'm sitting at home now and I'm listening to this just show. And I want to become a promoter and I want to do that. What would you say to those people in their local communities and their local cities? Make sure you do it for the love. Um, don't do it for the money. Um, don't do anything for money. Eventually, that'll, all the money will come back to you in some form or fashion. Um, mm. It might not be the actual you know, dollars and cents, um, but definitely do it with all your heart. And then people will be attracted to it and, and they'll see that hey, we want to promote our business. How can we throw our vendor tables and stuff at you? Or how can we put a banner on your stage? And that's when, you know, you ask for money or or whatever they want to barter. Um, but like me, I, I don't usually get sponsors. I usually like save up money and all my friends are affordable. You know, like last year, it only cost me like less than like $430 to p- make put together my entire festival because like my pals took it easy on my wallet. And that's why I don't book big acts because I'm like I don't I can't afford these people, you know. Yeah. But when it comes to my friends, I'll it's easy for me to say, yeah, I'll book you, you know, because like I'll give you a chance. And they take it easy on my wallet, and that's all they ever wanted was a chance and a stage. And I'm like, that's all I ever wanted as a stand-up comedian was a chance and a stage. So I know where you're coming from. So if I'm if I, we have a, a lot of a lot of listeners in the states, uh, if if I wanted to be and play and appear at your festival how would i go about that i mean you talk about only booking people your friends and people you work with i understand but say i'm a i'm a comic and i live maybe a state over or whatever it may be and i'd like to appear at your at your festival how would i do that how would someone approach you um i usually book the people that were on there first from last year right um because i'm like you know they were there for me like you know from the beginning um, I start locally and then I start statewide um, and if I have any room left and then I go national if I have any room left. 
But um, at this stage, I'm I'm, I'm promising um, the people that booked me um, on their comedy shows out here sure, just sure. to say, hey, I'm paying you back um, first um, because you guys gave me a chance. And everything comes back tenfold, like, you know, mm-hmm. and and honestly, you know, we rarely got paid as comics. We just was happy to be our, a name on our flyer. And that was about it. You know, yeah. and comedians don't do it for money. If you ask a comedian like on my level. That's like um, we don't make any money off this. We just like to make people laugh. Yeah, is um, it is it on multiple stages that you have and multiple venues? How is it kind of geographically set up? Um, how it's set up is that um, the comedians have their own uh, have their own dates and the musicians have their own dates. Right. Uh, because like as soon as like the comedians um, go on stage, they leave and go home, and I'm like, sure. I can't. You know, I you gotta stay for the show. Yeah. Um, and so, like, but I noticed that, you know, if they have a comedy show, they'll support the comedians. And if they have mm-hmm. a music show, the musicians will support the musicians. Um, but I'm a, glad I'm, like, the common thread. But what I do is, like, I, I have them on five different dates this year. Um, my friends own the venues, and I don't ask them to pay me or anything like that from the door or from the bar mm-hmm. or nothing like that. I'm like, you guys raise the money for yourselves. You know, I, I'd much rather have you guys keep 100%. I'll keep my merch sales, and I'll just, like, splurge the money off them and stuff like that. And I just we just want stages to perform on, you know, and yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but it's at a at this year we have it at my friend Smitty's Greenlight Tavern in Pueblo, and like a block away or so, or a couple blocks away, um, for the next couple, um, uh, alternating back and forth, is at a coffee shop, um, called the um the Hanging Tree Cafe. It's not like a racist name. It sounds like a racist name, you know, because like all the lynching from like you know years past. But it's not. It's a really cool story behind the name of it, and people should give it a chance. Um, Charles, Charles, the owner, is very supportive of the local scene there. And in the beginning, he had like nothing but singer songwriters there, you know, like the, the you know the, the acoustic stuff. And um, when I brought my my festival to his venue one time, he heard like um a Misfits cover song, um, and he was like, "Man, I love the Misfits," you know, and um, and so um so he started booking like metal acts ever since then. I'm like, holy crap! So that that, that thing that I opened the doors for all my metal friends to perform here, and at Smitty's they would usually have like DJs and reggae stuff and ska bands, and then like more metal people were like performing on the stages because of me, you know. And and I like opening doors for like um, bands that you wouldn't see at these venues, um, mm-hmm. actually play at these venues, and like mm-hmm. we've tried so many years to be on that stage, and then here you come along and you're friends with them, and it's just easy now. It's like we get to play here, and it's like always a dream of ours. And I'm like, that's just so rewarding because like, just to hear that is like, man, that's awesome. I got to be um, a part of that, of their mm-hmm. journey. It's like unlock the store that was on, that was locked before. Isn't it, so- isn't it interesting that, um, you know, we go all the way back to the, one of the beginnings of your story where someone like Clive and the RZA become mentors and inspire you to do great and powerful things. Have you ever considered, Sref, that you are now – that inspirational to someone else that you are now maybe almost a mentor to some of those people that are around you as well that look at you and go you know what Suresh has got hustle he's got he's got some moves he he's getting stuff done he's getting stuff organized he's doing it because he loves it it's very clear that he that you're in a happy place has it ever dawned on that you might be inspiring people yourself um, it hasn't really crossed my mind. I mean, I really don't think of it, you know. And I just like well, I just... Let, me, let me tell you this before we go any further. Simply reading your electronic press kit about yourself made me get up earlier that day to get stuff done. 
Oh, because wow. I thought that, that you were a very inspirational person, and I thought that the hustle and the the work ethic you showed was was very inspirational. Um, and I'm telling you now that will people who will listen to this podcast who will go who will check out your work, be blown away as they rightly should be, and you influence other people. And it's important that someone tells you that that's what you're doing. You've now moved into the Clive Barker Rizzo role for some people who are watching there'll be some kids who go to your show who go who's that guy over there that's organizing everything that everybody likes and talking to who's that guy and how can i be more like him and i'm telling you now that that will be the case what i like to call it on the podcast that these people are defenders of the faith and by that i mean that they're the defenders of these raw spaces where artistic endeavors can happen and these raw spaces where people are given a chance to express themselves via spoken word, comedy, music, or whatever it may be. Those things are becoming rarer and rarer. And those people like yourself who are willing to to do that and put themselves on the line to do that are becoming even rarer still. I salute you for doing so, sir. And I'm here to tell you that you are influencing other people in a very positive way. I think it's a, it means a lot to me. And and anything I can do to help, you know, I, I, I'm just all for it, you know, and I'm trying to be like, someone's light at the end of the tunnel or you know in a, in a good way so because sure. i know how dark the world can be well listen i'm, I'm sure everybody listening should we get Streth on again yes of course we should there's so much we need to talk about there's so much stuff we, we glossed we went quickly through his entire life you know we over an hour and a bit talking we could we could go on for much longer but ladies and gentlemen um fantastic the, the fantastic Streth may thanks for coming on the show uh, thank you for having me. It means the world to me. Thank you for taking More a chance welcome. on me. More than welcome, sir. Awesome, sir. So, Rafne, the really interesting conversation. I thought it was a lot of fun. We recorded, like, you know, you have to step to, like, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning to speak to someone on the other side of the world. Well worth it. I'm going to start doing them and speak to maybe some of my uh, friends kind of further afield a little bit more often. Got a lot of from that conversation. Hugely interesting person to talk to with a great outlook and a real hustle to what he's trying to do, really trying to get a involved with it as many things as he can any any artistic endeavors he tries to support in whichever way he can i'm going to put some links available on uh, the podcast as well but i really really enjoyed sitting down with sreth we'll definitely get him on the show again and uh, there's so much you want to cover i mean you must have seen so many bands that we, we didn't even get into uh, which you only mentioned briefly during the conversation but you definitely want to check out his festival he just does uh, his, his whole all, all the concerts he puts on Check out everything he's doing on social media. It's hugely, like I say, inspiring uh, and really made me question what I was doing and how I'm going to approach stuff as well. Really, really interesting. Hope you enjoyed. I hope you're enjoying all these sorts of shows that are going up. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as a whole. I'm enjoying the Friday night thing that I'm doing where I'm doing it live as well because it's a nice bit of back and forth and, and, and understanding kind of what people want to hear from the show, which is which is really good. Got a lot of great feedback from the last one, so I'll do another one of those as well. And maybe once we come down out of uh, quarantine and lockdown, I'll probably just do it to one episode a week and maybe some other bits and pieces. I think that seems better. I think that's more digestible for people. I think it's about, about the right amount of uh, the spoken message that people want. But as always, thanks for listening. And as I say, we, will get, we are getting through this. We will get through this. And I will see you at the show. Bye.